we are going to jump back into uh, our character study uh, this morning, and um, we're going to move from Abraham. We're going to talk about Abraham's grandson, uh, Jacob, uh, this morning. But as we do it, we're going to do that through uh, the lens of wisdom. And when we talk about wisdom, we'll define wisdom for you this way. Wisdom is seeing all of life like God does. Now, if you're jotting down some notes for the outlines, that's the first thing there. Seeing all of life like God does. In other words, um, it's seeing things from God's perspective. And our hope is that we don't just try uh, and effort our way through life, but that as we grow and mature as believers, we begin to see things from God's uh, perspective. So we're not just always kind of fighting, struggling, falling, fighting, struggling, falling, fighting, struggling, falling, and making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Hopefully we're seeing some trajectory and, and some growth. So when we apply wisdom uh, to our lives, I think the way that we would say that is that as our lives change, or that we hope our lives change, that the beginning of life change is choosing wisdom over willpower. Instead of just trying harder and trying harder and trying harder, what we're going to do is we're going to pray and we're going to be alone with God, have intimacy with God to the degree that we begin to see things the way that God sees things. We begin to see them differently. Billy Graham, for example, says that he reads Proverbs, which is the wisdom book, right? That um, he reads a chapter in Proverbs every day. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs, so he starts the beginning of every month. And obviously in the shorter months, he'll double up there right at the end, but on the first uh, of every month, he's reading Proverbs chapter 1, and he reads it over and over and over and over again. He's done it all of his life, and um, God has used that wisdom in his life to change, obviously, his perspective to see people differently. And um, he's blessed countless millions of people throughout um, that process. So hopefully what we'll do this morning as we look at Jacob's life is that we will uh, we'll look at it and that we'll see him. Uh, through the eyes of wisdom. So we're going to start with a proverb uh, this morning as we look at it. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30, if you got a copy of the scripture and you want to turn there. And we're going to read uh, verses 21 and 23 of Proverbs 30. It says this, Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. Uh, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Now, you're probably thinking that's a really weird uh, proverb to start off with. Well, we're going to look at probably the weirdest uh, marriage in all of the scriptures this morning when we look at, uh, when we look at the life uh, of Jacob. And um, I do, I'm blessed to do uh, a lot of premarital counseling with young couples who are getting married. Um, we, our church, the folks who live around us, the average age is about 33 and a half years old and they have two and a half kids under the age of six. And so that means we've got a pretty young church, so we do lots and lots of weddings, which means we do lots and lots of premarital uh, counseling. And so as we do that, um, we're involved in that process. And one of the things that um, I feel like uh, I see or we see our team sees a lot is that their couples, they tend to put a lot of emphasis on uh, the ceremony and not as much emphasis on the matrimony, right? And so we spend lots and lots of time over here. And, and listen, weird things happen. Um, you've been to enough weddings to know weird things happen. Uh, a buddy of mine was... Um, he has a friend, a pastor friend, who was doing a wedding, and um, they, they really wanted their uncle to be involved, but he couldn't get there. And so his contribution was to give them a verse to be read, uh, kind of a scripture reading. And so the verse that he asked for was 1 John 4.18. He wanted it to be read. Uh, there is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4.18. 
So whenever the person got up to read that day, they didn't look at the reference right. So instead of reading 1 John 4.18, the reader read John 4.18, which says, the one you have now, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So weird stuff happens, right, at weddings. So what's going to happen is that you're going you're gonna to put all this emphasis into the day Right, and it's you know the, the nails are perfect, and the hair is perfect, and the dress is perfect, and the tux matches just right, and everything is great on the day. But you fast forward a year later, right? Just one year later, and everything you know, Prince Charming has got you know the stained T-shirt on with his ever-expanding midsection. He's got a little chili stain right there, and he's annoyingly slurping the milk off of his midnight snack, right? She's got a white mask on before going to bed in her flannel pajamas that go from here to the floor, right? And it it looks really, really different. And so I hope today what we're going to do is uh, through the life of Jacob, we'll learn some spiritual truth that we can apply to our lives in terms of discipleship, and we'll bring a little reality to to matrimony. the story of Jacob, um, I'm sure most of you uh, know it, um, but well, we're going to pick it up in the middle just by way of reminder. Remember Jacob and his brother Esau, right? They get to the point where uh, their father Isaac is going to bless them, and he's going to bless Esau because Esau is the oldest. But remember, Jacob sneaks in, right? He dresses up like Esau, and his father is blind, right? Isaac is blind, and so while his dad is blind, he kind of changes his voice, and obviously he's dressed up like Esau, and his father can't tell the difference because his father is literally in the dark. And um, his father blesses Jacob the younger instead of Esau the older. And so Esau, tough guy, outdoors guy, um, he's hot, he's upset, so he's going to kill Jacob. So Jacob goes on the run. He travels from what would be um, like from here to almost to Illinois. It would be about what the traveling distance was to go on the run to be with his mom's uh, family. And when he gets close, he uh, is on the outskirts of that area, that region, and he runs into some uh, of the shepherds of the family. And one of them, uh, would be a distant relative of his, is a young gal named Rachel. And he sees uh, Rachel. They meet for the first time. And um, Rachel's trying to water her flock, but she can't water her flock because there's a big stone over the mouth of the well. So the sheep can't get water. So that's where we'll pick, up, uh, we'll pick up the story in Genesis chapter 29. And this is verses uh, 9 through 12. It says this. While he, that's Jacob, was speaking with some of the shepherds. While he was still speaking with them, the shepherds, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near, and he rolled the stone away from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman or her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Now, testosterone is such an amazing, amazing thing. So here's Jacob, and he sees Rachel, and he thinks Rachel is hot, right? And Rachel, and this to me is like a scene from uh, like Gone with the Wind, right? She's like, oh, 
no one can roll the stone away. No one is strong enough. And Jacob's like, oh, yes, there is someone who's strong enough, right? So he rolls the rock off of the, off of the well. And it says that when he does it, he looks at Rachel. And Rachel looks at him. And she's like, no one could be that strong. Like she's about to faint, right? You know, like she's, like she's fanning herself. And he, and he catches her. And he kisses her, right? And they kiss. First time they've ever seen each other. And they kiss. And then they cry. And then he says, don't worry, we're cousins. Oh, that makes it all okay, right? So, you know, we'll say they're from Arkansas, right? I probably shouldn't say, I would say West Virginia, but Ballyard's here, so I can't say West Virginia because he's here. So you see, already this thing is, is kind of sideways um, already. And so <laughs> Rachel's reaction, it says, is that she immediately runs to tell her father. So I'm sure Jacob's thinking, man, you know, what, what happened here? What, what just, I thought this was going well, and it's, not, and it's not going well. And so then what happens is Jacob, he meets, uh, he meets Laban, and um, he, uh, you know, right off the bat says to Laban, listen, I'm interested in your daughter. Now, then, um, uh, you didn't date the way we date. Then marriages were arranged, the way that God intended for marriage to happen, right? The marriages were arranged. Parents put them together. And so he announced his intention to, to want to marry her. And so here's kind of the way it worked is, uh, is that, you know, Laban said, okay, you, you've got to pay a dowry to marry. Well, he didn't have any money, right? He had just gone on the run from his father's house. And so he said, well, here's what we'll do. You can work for me. Uh, you can work for me for seven years, and if you work for me for seven years, then you can marry, uh, you can marry my daughter, uh, Rachel. So here's kind of how it, how it worked. We'll pick it up in verse 16. We'll read all the way down through verse 25. Now, Laban had two daughters. The older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. We've already been in, introduced to her. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, we'll just push the pause button right there. Any of you who have siblings, and in particular who have older siblings, I have a brother who's 10 years older than me, and when I was a kid, my brother was very athletic, and he was very charismatic, and, he, and you know what it feels like, right, to be compared to one of your siblings, especially if maybe you're the lesser of the two siblings. Here's, here's literally what it says in, in Hebrew. It says Leah's eyes were weak. That word for weak is also the word that is translated many times in the sense of uh, uh, bovine or cow. So uh, one translator that I, I read, the verse literally, he translated it, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, but Leah had cow eyes. Congratulations, Leah. That's what you get. That's your text, right, in the, in the scripture. That's how Rachel and Leah, that's how they worked. But Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you. That's great, right? Uh, well, I don't have a better option. It's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man, so stay with me. So Jacob uh, served for seven years for Rachel. This is one of the greatest verses, and I love this verse, one of my greatest verses in all the scripture. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days. 
because of the love that he had for her. Seven years, 40 hours a week. Get up every morning, work out in the hot desert sun all day, and it seemed like, like, like nothing because of how Jacob loved Rachel. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me the wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the morning, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her, uh, or excuse me, in the evening. And in the morning, behold, and there's, that's an emphasized word in Hebrew, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have, uh, have, you, have you deceived me? So here's what happens. Um, Jacob serves seven years to have the opportunity to marry Rachel. So on the day of the wedding, when it's supposed to happen, right, they would have drunk a lot, and I'm sure Uncle Laban makes sure that he gives Jacob a lot to drink. And so when it's time to consummate the marriage, Hebrew uh, women wore a very, very thick veil. They don't have electric lights, right, to light anything up. So he marries her underneath the thick veil the way they would have had the wedding. She would not have raised her veil. They go into the tent. They consummate the marriage. There's no light. He has no idea that he has just married, not Rachel, but he has been married to Leah. So he thinks he goes to bed with Rachel. He wakes up in the morning, and you read the text. Behold, it's Leah. One of my, uh, one of my favorite Old Testament uh, commentators says that this is the nature of sin in our lives. This is great. This is the nature of sin in our lives. When we when we go to bed, we think it's Rachel. And when we wake up, it's always Leah. That's how sin works in our lives. We think it's going to be great. We think it's going to go great. We think it's going to be fun and comfortable and wonderful. But all of a sudden, we find out the results. And when we see it for what it really is, the results are, are very, very different. So here's how this kind of works out in their relationship. So Jacob wakes up the next morning. He realizes it's Leah. He realizes he's, been, he's kind of been tricked. And so he goes to Uncle Laban and he says, hey, man, what gives? Like, I worked for you for seven years. We had an agreement, and we, didn't, we just don't have time to read all the verses in the text in Genesis 29. But if you look back, I think you have to look backwards, right around verse 26 or so. Um, basically, what Laban says to Jacob is, he says, I don't know how it is where you're from, Jacob, but where we're from, we, we give preference to the older, not the younger. And that's just a little dig you get the dig that Uncle Laban's making, right? Basically, what he's saying is, you know, Jacob, I've heard about you. And I've heard about how when your father was blind, you, the younger, snuck in and took the blessing from the older. And you tricked your dad. Your dad. You tricked your dad when he was blind in the dark. So, Jacob... You just got tricked in the dark, pal. I don't know how it is where you're from, but we don't give preference to the younger in front of the older. So what happened here? It's nothing but payback. That's the way God designed it. So all of a sudden, here's Jacob, and he finds himself married to a woman that he doesn't necessarily 
love, or care about. So, here's what he says. He says, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll work for seven more years. I'll give you seven more years of my life as the dowry or as the payment um, for to marry Rachel. And that was his commitment. That was Laban's commitment. And so from there, um, from there it kind of it kind of moves forward. Now, for us, uh, as we kind of just work our way through um, a little bit more of the text, I want to give you three um, myths about marriage that come uh, right, out of, um, right out of this story, right out of this narrative, and I think they'll make sense. I hope they'll make sense um, for us. And the first of those uh, marriage myths is that your family always knows what is right for your marriage or for your relationship. Whenever I do premarital counseling, especially with, um, with young couples, but certainly it works, um, works well for us if you've been married maybe uh, a little longer, um, one of the struggles that couples have is um, they never buy into the leave and cleave reality. In Genesis chapter 2, let a man leave his father and mother and let him cleave unto his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so what happens a lot of times, and it happens on both sides of the coin, husbands and wives, they remain so connected to their families that often there's a little bit of leaving, but not a lot of, not a lot of cleaving. There's not a lot of oneness and, and unity. Uh, one of my favorite um, Bible teachers is a guy named Tommy Nelson. Uh, he's from Denton, Texas. And um, he talks to young couples who are about to get married, and he tells them that the three marriage killers in year one of your marriage uh, are finances, family, and not communicating enough about sex. So he tells them, buy a really, really, or, or rent a really, really small apartment, shoot your in-laws, and have lots of sex in your first year of marriage. That's his advice to them about how it's supposed to work. And in general, that'll go well. Because for a lot of us, we... Um, we remain tethered to mom or dad or sometimes even brother and sister. And all we get input-wise uh, in marriage comes from them. And I would just say to you, that's a really, really dangerous, that's a really, really dangerous place. And that's where I see Jacob in the text. He's kind, of, he's kind of become immersed in this thing and he's got no outside biblical community or perspective. And I would just encourage you that when you do that, um, you put your parents, especially, in a really, really bad spot. You put your parents in the place of, uh, they're in a no-win uh, situation. You and I should find someone else, other than mom, other than dad, other than a brother, other than a sister, to go to whenever we're struggling in our marriage. Because it's, there's no, they loved you first, right? If you go talk to your mom or you go talk to your dad and you say, well, my spouse did this or my spouse did this or my spouse did this, right? The, whose side are they gonna be on, right? They gave birth to you. They've loved you ever since you was a kid or they were siblings. They've, they've known you, loved you ever since you know, you've been together ever since you were young. You put them in a no-win spot because what typically is gonna happen is that you and your spouse are eventually gonna make up. You'll forget about it. You'll move on. They can't forget about it. Mom and dad hold on to that stuff. They store that stuff. They think about it. They roll it over in their minds. They're worried for you. They're concerned for you. You put them in a no-win no situation. It's lose-lose um, for them. 
So I would encourage you again to have somebody who is outside. That's why biblical community, that's why being part of a church is so important. That's why being part of a small group of people is so important. So people can look into your life and say, hey, I see this. You need to adjust this. You need to do this. You can speak into other people's lives and, and say the same and be the same for other folks. Because if not, you kind of get yourself in. I encourage um, uh, young couples all the time. Listen, if your dad, uh, if your mom calls you and says, hey, you're going to be here on Thanksgiving uh, for dinner at noon. Even if you know you can be there at noon, even if you know it, say, I need to talk to my husband first. Or I need to talk to my wife first. Because your parents and your family need to know that you guys are one. And you need to build a strong fence around your marriage and your relationship underneath that whole leave and cleave theology that God gives us in Genesis chapter 2. Make sense? That's marriage myth number one. So let's look at uh, the next thing that happens in the story. We'll pick it up in verse 27. So uh, this is Laban talking to Jacob. Complete the week of this one, and I will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week or completed the seven years worth of work. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife and Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into her and went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another uh, for another seven years. Second marriage myth is that fighting is always wrong. Do you, think that, um, do you think that Rachel ever used her beauty to manipulate Jacob against Leah? You think that ever happened? We don't have time to actually read about it in the story. But it actually happened so much so that Rachel and Leah, um, they went at it time after time after time. They fight and there's, and there's conflict. And it causes conflict in Rachel's relationship with Jacob and in Leah's relationship uh, with Jacob. Obviously, I'm setting aside the whole aspect of polygamy and that and their society and how all that worked. And we know that part is not good and the struggles that come right with that. But just in the perspective of their relationship, constantly there's conflict. And in our marriages and our relationships, it's the same way. Listen, conflict is inevitable in marriage. Conflict is inevitable, but bitterness and resentment are optional. I'll say that to you again. Conflict is inevitable, but bitterness and resentment are optional. And what you and I have got to learn how to do, whether you're here today and you're married or whether you're here today and you're single, and um, statistics say that uh, 90% of uh, us will someday be married. Listen, conflict is gonna come. You take two sinful people, right? You put them underneath the same roof long enough and conflict uh, is gonna occur. Um, if you haven't read uh, Tim and Kathy Keller's book on marriage and you're looking for something good to read, I highly, highly recommend it. One of the things that they say in that book is that marriage is not given to us to make us happy. It's given to us to make us holy. That marriage is a sanctifier in our lives and God uses it that way, not just to make us happy, but to make us more like Christ. And most of the time, the way that that happens is through conflict. Now, most people have one of two styles when it comes to conflict. You're either blow up or you're shut up. 
one of the two. You either have um, a really, really short fuse or you have a really, really long fuse. And so what happens is, the, the, typically, not always, but typically, the blow-up marries the clam-up or the shut-up. And that's the way that it works. So who in the room is the blow-up? Who's the blow-up? Yeah? Yeah? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that means we're a lot of clam-ups in the room. Who's the clam-up? Yeah? Yeah. How many of you think you're perfect? You're raising your wife's hand. That's very nice. I like that. That's very good. Very good. Yeah. I think there's going to be a conflict right there. There's going to be a conflict. And so what happens is, so um, the, the one who blows up, they tend to say things they regret. They fire off. They'll say it, say it, say it. And they struggle because they can't, can't reach out there and grab those words, right? They can't take them back. They can apologize, and they can, but they can't. And that's hard. But I will say... Um, even though we tend to bless the clam up more, even though we tend to say, well, that's better, it's not better. People who clam up tend to, um, they tend to use their silence to freeze their spouse out and to manipulate their spouse to get what they, what they want. I, I've got a friend, um, and um, he and his wife got into an argument. They were had un, unhealthy patterns in, in their marriage. They, um, they got into an argument, and he did not speak a word to her for 28 days. And I mean, he was just, I mean, just beating her up on the inside, fr- just freezing her out. And uh, it was just brutal. So I don't know that necessarily one is, is better than the other, but what is important is that we live in a mode of repentance. So what does that mean? That means that you know what your natural tendency is in conflict and that you work against that. So if you are the, if you're the blow up, you know that there will there'll, there'll be times in the middle of a conflict before you say it, you want to apply wisdom. What would wisdom look like? It would be like you saying to your spouse, we just need to take a time out. Just give me five minutes. Now walk away and let me think and let me pray and let me come back. And then, and then we'll talk. If you're the clam up, that means you don't necessarily walk away. That you kind of just, you're one of those pers- people that just likes to let things build up and you want to sweep it under the rug and just pretend like everything's okay when everything's not really okay. So that means you've got to work to stay in the fight and stay in, in the argument and speak to what you sense is, is really going on. Um, I, I, know a, I know a couple, and, um, and they were struggling in this same area uh, in conflict. And, um, and he, she was the blow-up, and he was the kind of the clam-up. And, and they were trying to get some counseling and get some work on that. And so the counselor basically said that to him. He's like, listen, you've, you've got to tone it down a little bit. And he's like, and you've got to stay in the, stay in the argument, man. You've got to. And he's like, it's just so hard for me. He's like, whenever we get in conflicts, I can get nervous. My mouth gets dry and my, my palms get sweaty. And his wife looks at him and says, well, then lick your palms. Right? So, so you've got to stay. You've got to stay in it. Uh, until that thing is finished. So let me give you three things, three identifiers, all right, when you're in conflict. Number one, number one, identify the problem. So many times when there's conflict, uh, and I'll say this from a personal perspective, this, what you're arguing about, is really not the problem. This is about that, that there's something else 
going on. And I know for me personally, a lot of times I allow myself to get frustrated about something that I'm not really willing or do I really want to talk about or deal with. And so my frustrations come out about something totally different. Right, so number one, identify the real problem. Number two, um, identify your part in the problem and repent of it. So once you've identified the problem, figure out what part of it you are contributing to, identify it, say it out loud, and then speak repentance over that. And then number three, to bring closure to it, I would encourage you to say, The two hardest words in the English language. I'm sorry. Let's just say it. Ready? I'm sorry. There's evidence right there. Let's try that again. Ready? One, two, three. I'm sorry. Why is it so hard? It's just hard to say those words. I had a couple come uh, to me for uh, some marriage counseling. It's been 10 years ago or so. Uh, Now, and they were struggling, and i got to be honest. I'm, I'm not a good counselor, to be honest with you. It's not my gift. It's not what I'm best at. But I was trying to help them figure out what's going on. I mean, they've been married for 13 years, and, um, and I just couldn't help them get any, any traction. Until finally we talked about a, a specific conflict issue, and I said, well, okay, once you guys have, have gotten that and you've got to kind of got dealt with it, um, how would you guys close the loop on that? And he's like, what do you mean, close the, close the loop? And I'm like, well... Once you get to the end, you realize what you've done wrong and what you've done. And there's almost always some wrong on both sides of the coin. There's almost always some wrong in the action and some wrong in the reaction. And I said, did you you say, I'm sorry? Did you? And it just went silent. And they both looked at me. I'm like, do you all say I'm sorry? They looked at each other and I said, when was the last time you said I'm sorry? Either one of you. They looked at each other. I'm like, you're kidding me. 13 years of marriage, in 13 years of marriage, neither of them had ever spoken the words, I'm sorry. And you know, one of his frustrations was, well, she's a history major. You know, whenever we get in a fight, she brings up all these old things, you know, all these other arguments that we've been in and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, that's because you never say I'm sorry. You never really finish an argument. You never repent. You never turn away from it. And you never finish it. So because of that, all those things are still sitting there wide open. That's why they all get brought into this new, into this new thing. So, so conflict is inevitable. You see it in relationships in Scripture. But, but bitterness and resentment are optional. you got to sit down. you got to deal with it. you got to know what your style is. you got to turn your heart Godward. And you've got to repent. Let's look at one more uh, passage here at the end of the uh, the end of the story, end of the narrative, is verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened up her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And then she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. And she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. 
And the third marriage myth is um, that this whole I can change my spouse. I think a lot of us feel like it is our job or our responsibility to change our spouse, to adjust them off of uh, where they are or whatever we see um, in their lives, and we feel like that's our job or, um, or our responsibility. And what happens is when our spouse doesn't change according to what we think change should look like, uh, we just kind of get polarized, and um, we just get into, we get into dangerous patterns because we just start to, we start to settle for less than, than the best. And, uh, you know, um, coming out of last night with the whole moving and grooving idea and the whole name that tune, um, I, I figured I'd throw one more uh, at you. Um, one of my favorite songs um, from, uh, from the 70s, let me read you, I can't remember the, the title. Um, the, original, the original title is called Escape. But you, maybe you better know the song by the Pina Colada song. Everybody know that song, right? If you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain, if you're not into yoga and you have half a brain, if you like, well, we can't say the rest of it because that's where Gull Lake, right? We can't say the rest of it. Um, so that song was sung by a guy named Rupert Holmes. Um, he did, as a matter of fact, I'll throw his picture up here so you can get a, get a look at uh, Rupert uh, up there. And that has, that has nothing to do with what I'm about to tell you other than I just didn't think the guy that sang that song looked like that. I don't know what I expected him to look like, but, but that's Rupert, and the number one song, right, for a number of weeks back in, I believe it was 1978, was the Pina Colada song. And there, the whole idea behind the song is there's a husband and a wife, and their marriage has gotten kind of vanilla and kind of boring, and they've kind of gotten to this point where they're polarized, and they're not changing, and they're not working together on it, and so he puts an ad in the paper, and the whole idea is he was going to put an ad in the paper to, so that he could find someone that was more like what he liked. So he puts all these weird things in the ad. If you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain, you're not into yoga, you have you know, all these weird things in there. And so the whole idea is if you, if you, if you like all these things, you're going to meet me at this, uh, at this bar and we're going to, we're going to escape. So he sets up the whole plan. Somebody answers the ad. They're going to meet him. He gets there, and his wife shows up. And the whole idea is it, uh, the guy in the song, he's been trying to work so hard to change his wife and probably the wife trying to change him. But they didn't realize that the problem is not differences. Men and women are different. Husbands and wives are different. We all know that. The problem is expectations. And what I love about the end of this narrative with Jacob and Genesis and Rachel and Leah is that Leah, you know, Rachel at that point was not able to have children. Leah was. Leah has a son. And she says, ah, this will change him. He will love me now since I've given him a son. And he doesn't change. And then she has two sons. And you, we read it in the text. Well, now he'll love me because I've given him two sons. And he doesn't change. And then she says, well, I, I, I'll give him another son. And she does. She gives him another son. And she says, now he'll surely love me because I've given him three sons. And he doesn't change. And then she has a fourth son. And I don't know if you noticed it in the text when we read it. 
There's no more of this, I'm going to change Jacob. She names him Judah. And she says, this time, I will praise the Lord. In other words, she shifted her focus from making Jacob her idol, worshiping her husband, trying so hard to get his love that somehow that was going to complete her, somehow that was going to fill her up. And she said, you know what, I'm just going to turn my heart towards, towards God and I'm going to praise him and I'm going to let him be the magnificent, wonderful thing in my life. And instead of asking my husband to fill me up, I'm going to ask him to fill me up. And you know what happens? Is It's really, if you... Take some time, read the rest of the chapters there in Genesis. The older they get, Jacob moves from how he feels about Rachel and his feelings shift. And he loves Leah more and more. I'm not saying he loves Rachel less, but he loves Leah more and more the older he gets. Leah stops trying to change him and she says, God, I'm going to let you change. I'm going to let you change me. And so for us, I think as we look at marriage, as we look at our relationships, and as we look at heading and growing um, older, the significance of the focus on our own uh, walks with God are what's going to allow our marriages to stand the test of time. See, um, what Jacob needed, he needed... Um, for him to be able to marry Rachel, or at least in his mind, what he needed was something, uh, was something really strong to help him get over, I got to work for seven years. But the love that he had for Rachel overwhelmed his love for comfort. It overwhelmed his love for staying in bed when he didn't want to get up and go to work in the morning, right? What you and I need to set all the other loves in our life right is we need to have a love that is stronger than all those other loves. We need to passionately pursue Christ in relationship with him so that that love reorders all of the other loves in our life. I'm not saying we don't need guardrails uh, around certain temptations. I'm not saying that we don't need to memorize scripture. And I, all those things are important. But ultimately, what wins is the strength of our love and our passion for Christ. You know, um, my wife Angie, her grandparents uh, this week had their uh, 71st, right? 71st wedding anniversary this week. Her grandfather is 93 and Mimi's 89, 89, right? And uh, <clears throat> so um, as they've gotten older, um, it, has been, uh, it has been so much fun to why um, Angie's grandma was diagnosed with MS a number of years ago, and so her health um, has deteriorated. But it has been such a blessing to us to watch her grandfather, even at 93, do everything he can to take care of her. Um, he fought having in-home care because he thought he could take, he didn't want someone else taking care of, of Mimi when she had uh, an accident or when something uh, occurred or when she needed so He wanted to be there with her. He will leave the house and he will get back as fast as he can to be there um, for Mimi. And their love, I got to tell you, is, is, just, is just beautiful. One of the things whenever um, we got married that Angie kind of prepped me for um, whenever we, I was there with her the first year we were married, I was there for the holidays with, with her family, the Christmas holidays. And, and she said, look, 
Um, now, New Year's Eve, whenever the ball gets ready to, to drop, um, just be ready because um, Mimi and Papa, they kiss for a minute. They start to kiss at 11.59, and they kiss all the way till the ball drops. And she's like, it's an, it's an event. They've done it for ever since they've been married. It's, I'm like, well, that's pretty, pretty cool. So I was thinking, kiss. I'm here to tell you, when the clock strikes 11.59, it is on like Donkey Kong, man. <laughs> for 60 seconds. So let me, I'll just give you for instance. I'll just give you, whenever the new millennium rang in, right? Whenever we're crossing into the year 2000, here's how we rang in the year 2000. We're with Angie's family. Papa is anxiously awaiting the clock to strike 11.59. He's flipping back and forth on the TV between channel to channel to channel to channel. And every channel's got a clock. It's got a clock. It's got a clock. And all of a sudden, he flips the channel. He sees 11.59, and he just stops on the channel that he stops on, right? He stops on MTV2, where they were playing the video for the thong song. He and Mimi, they go at it over here. So we're like, we can't look over here. We can't look over here. We rang in the new year, staring at, or the new millennium, just staring at the ceiling, right? And you're thinking, you're thinking, man, that's really neat. It's beautiful. It's really gross. I'm just going to tell you. It is not. It is not. But you know what? Um, I called Papa on their anniversary this week. And, uh, and I said, yeah, I'm going to talk to him for a couple minutes and uh, made some small talk. And I said, Papa, you and Mimi, I said, it's been beautiful. Y'all been married all these years. And, of course, he said, y'all, I love Mimi. And I said, I, I know you love Mimi. I said, you know what? I said, uh, I know it's been 71 really good New Year's Eve kisses. <laughs> He's like, well, actually 72. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we all want a love like that. And I can tell you from being around Angie's grandparents that both of them love the Lord and they make him God in their lives. They allow God to be God and they approach one another with the right expectations. And when something comes up, comes up they talk about it and they deal with it, right? And they, they left their families, they cleaved, they came together and the two of them absolutely absolutely one. And I pray that what you and I will learn from this narrative in, in Genesis is that, um, is that marriage, is, um, marriage is wonderful, beautiful work, right? Let's pray together. Um, God, I, uh, I pray for um, folks in the room today who are married that, God, we will rightly uh, approach our relationships from the context of our relationship with you. God, we are so grateful for the person that you have brought into our lives. And, God, I pray that, um, just like we prayed last night, that you would make us good repenters, that we would run to you, that you would fill us up, that we wouldn't ask our spouse to do what they're not designed to do, but that God, then out of the grace that we receive from you, that we could approach them rightly and we could be involved in the wonderful work of marriage. 
Lord, it's given to us to honor you, to glorify you, to be an example of how much you love the church. I pray, God, for folks in the room today who are single, that, um, God, that if there is someone out there for them that you today would chip away whatever needs to be chipped away in their hearts, no matter where they are, no matter what's going on in their lives, that whoever it is, God, that is out there, that is for them, in front of them, who is uh, right now awaiting them, that, God, you would be um, sanctifying them and preparing them, preparing their hearts. I know, God, we certainly in the room, if, if uh, those of us, God, who've been blessed with children, we pray that for uh, our children on a regular basis, for the person that uh, potentially they're going to step into marriage and relationship with that ultimately, God, we want you to be the name that's famous and for you to be uh, the name, uh, God, that is known and the name that is seen. And that, God, the legacy of, of our lives would be a marriage, would be a relationship, uh, certainly would at least be relationship with you that, um, that brings honor and attention and fame to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.